Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we welcome Deandra Strayton. Deandra, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm an incoming third year in the PhD program here for the clinical psychology program, and I study ways to improve access to care for traditionally underserved families of children with autism. And I work in the MSU Autism Lab that's led by Dr. Brooke Ingersoll. May you please clarify what you mean by access to care? Sure. So a lot of families of children with autism who come from more underserved backgrounds, so maybe families of color or families from other maybe rural backgrounds, they may not have as much access to services that children with autism benefit a lot from. And so we kind of, what I'm interested in is how to support the the public settings where these people are able to get their services and how to support them to get that service out to those folks who are not getting it as often. What does a typical experiment look like for you or a case study in this particular example? Right now in our lab, we're doing a randomized control trial where we're looking at the effectiveness of a parent training intervention. Parent training is one of the um, recommendations for children with autism in terms of their service use. And so what we do is, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. We're training the parents in ways and strategies to use to help teach their child, either to help them reduce challenging behavior or to help them learn a new skill. And so instead of a regular model where you have the therapist working directly with the child, you actually have the therapist training the parent about how to work directly with their child. So in the lab, what we're doing is looking at the effectiveness of one parent training intervention called Parent uh, Project Impact. And that intervention is looking at improving social communication for young kids with autism. And we're doing that in a telehealth model. For my own work, my thesis that I just finished was really looking at community mental health system which is like mental health clinics in the community where children who have autism who are enrolled in Medicaid would receive a lot of their services from. And so what I did for that study was looking at providers' perspectives on how easy it was to do parent training and what was getting in the way and how we might better support them to be able to use that service, which we know is evidence-based, with children who are enrolled in Medicaid. What was the name of the method that you referred to earlier? Is randomized? Randomized controlled trial. Could you explain to our audience what that means? So a randomized control trial, or what we call an RCT for short, is when we actually have a treatment. So in this case, it was the parent training intervention. And then you also have a control group. And so what you're doing is you're seeing, um, does this intervention work better than treatment as usual? And so that's sort of what it means. It means we have a control group, and then we have a treatment group. In our study, we actually have two treatment groups. So we have a group where the parents are being assisted by a therapist over telehealth, so kind of like a Skype-type situation. And they're learning this program and doing it with their child, and the therapist is helping with the feedback. And then the other treatment group would be they're just getting access to the online program, so really just learning kind of in learning modules and slides and videos about how to do these strategies with their child, but they don't have that coach. And then the third group would be a control group where we're just kind of letting them get services as usual. In our study, we actually give them access to the program at the end of the nine months of the study. But certain different RCTs or randomized control trials may not have that kind of a condition where you can actually access the treatment after the study. This is really interesting, but some people might not know what autism is. Would you be able to explain that briefly and then explain how are the parents trained? So autism is a neurodevelopmental condition in which children have deficits in social communication 
and they may also have restricted and repetitive interests or behaviors. So when we say social communication, those are kind of those things that you might think of with like eye contact or back and forth conversations or reciprocal conversation, those sorts of things that we use to communicate socially. Children with autism have difficulty with those types of skills. And then in terms of restricted and repetitive interests or behaviors, that's when we see some children have a really restricted interest in trains or something like that, where they're highly focused on trains, they really want to talk about trains, they have kind of a very restricted interest in a particular topic. Or they may have behaviors that they do repetitively, they may flap their hands repetitively or do something like that, line up toys in a very straight line, things in a repetitive nature. So that's sort of the two main categories where we're diagnosing autism. It's a neurodevelopmental condition, so it's happening throughout development from the from the time the child's a baby. Did that answer the question for that part? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then how we train the parents is what we do first is we talk a lot about sort of what we call psychoeducation, so letting them know about what autism is, um, how behavior works. A lot of times children with autism may have challenging behavior where they may be yelling, screaming, throwing things. But what we teach parents is that all behavior is communicative, which means that there's a reason why your child is acting like that. It may be that they are looking for attention. It may be that they're trying to tell you, but it's difficult for them to tell you with words what they need, something like that. So we kind of teach them about those sorts of basic things. But then we're going to be teaching them specific strategies. In the case for the study I was just mentioning, we're teaching them strategies to promote social communication. So doing things like imitation, following your child's lead in play. The intervention is a play-based intervention. So teaching them, you know, how do we prompt children to, to give us a certain response that's more advanced for them. So instead of just saying a one-word response, how do we prompt them to use two or three words? There are certain strategies we would teach parents on how to do that. For example, have there been any differences in the two methods that you have referred to in your study in regards to a difference in the parental child method versus the healthcare professional child method? Yeah, so we know that parent training is an effective way that parents actually have been shown to learn these strategies and they can do them to fidelity or what we call fidelity is just doing them as we intend them to be done in the lab setting. Of course, a therapist is trained, you know, with graduate level training and how to work with children. And of course, they they may have more skills to start with. But we do know that we can train parents to do a lot of these strategies and make really big progress with their children. And we also know that children with autism who receive parent training see growth in terms of increasing skills, decreasing parent, sorry, decreasing challenging behavior. And parents also reduce their stress because um, they feel like they have more tools to use with their child when they may have felt very kind of lost before. So we know that it's helpful for the child and also for the parent and family, which is really nice. Is this a really common method or do people still prefer to go into an office with a trained professional instead? That's a good question. So what we do is we're not really trying to take away from those direct service hours that the children are already getting. What we're doing is we're training the providers to also give a couple hours of teaching the parent as well. And so the idea is that a therapist can meet with a child maybe 40 hours a week max, right? But a parent or a guardian or some family member who we can train 
is theoretically with the child for more than those 40 hours. And so if we can train the parent to do things as well, even when the child's not at school or not in therapy, when they're at home and it's bedtime or it's bath time or it's the weekend, we can still get some of that intervention in. And so you're actually increasing the amount of intervention hours that the child can get. So oftentimes we're not trying to take away services and only be doing um, parent training. We're just trying to kind of add more tools to the toolbox for the child. What happens then to the child while the parents are receiving this training? Is there a location where the child can be uh, held in, uh, like with a nurturing figure? What happens during the parent session then? Sure. So providers may do it different ways. Um, Sort of the best case scenario, sort of in terms of the evidence base, would be to have the child actually present when you're practicing the skills, but have a time when the parent can be learning either on their own or with the coach just learning the strategies and learning what they are, why they work, how to do them with the coach um, or a provider, and then having the child there to practice with. And so what we want to see for evidence-based practice would be first giving some psychoeducation about the strategy, so what it is, why it works, Then we want the provider to be modeling the strategy to show the parent, this is how I do it. So the parent can actually see the model. And then we would want some time for the parent to have practice on their own and feedback with the coach. So the parent would be practicing using the strategies and then the provider would be giving feedback, you know, in terms of good things that they're doing and things they can improve on in session. That way, when the provider is not there, the parent kind of has a sense of how to do it when the provider is not there and they can do it at bedtime, bath time, the weekends, those sorts of things. I'm not sure if this is within your realm of study, but what about the educators, like a teacher? Is a teacher trained to deal with a student that has autism or do students with autism go to a specific school? Like, can they go to any school? Sure. So it kind of depends on the child. Children with autism, we sort of talk about it as a spectrum. You may have heard that, sort of the autism spectrum, which means that there are kids who have more skills and less skills. There are children who have more kind of impairment and less impairment. Impairment meaning just sort of how much is the autism getting in the way of their everyday life. So for some children, they may be able to stay in a general education classroom where they're with other typically developing peers in like first grade. For some children, they may need more support, and so they may be getting special education services, and those services may be in a separate classroom, or they may be being pulled for a few hours a day. It really depends on the child and their skills and sort of what the child's needs are. And then in terms of the educators, you know, the general education classroom teachers, they should be getting some class, at least at least one class, about sort of how to work with children with special needs, although they're not specialists in that. The special education teachers would be people who have kind of really specialized in how to work with people with autism and other developmental disabilities. And so they kind of have more expertise in that sort of situation. You mentioned that you were looking at differences between services that are being received by minority families versus Caucasian families. Uh, Can you elaborate a little bit more on that and what you have observed? So we know from other studies that children of color or of Hispanic or Latino ethnicity backgrounds, they receive diagnoses much later than their white counterparts, even if you're holding sort of incomes consistent or if you're holding sort of need, level of need consistent. We know that they're getting diagnosed later. There's a lot of reasons why people think that may be happening. 
It may be sort of different barriers that are going on in those communities. It may also be that there is bias in terms of people who are diagnosing. There are lots of different reasons why that may be happening, but we know the diagnoses are coming later, which is a problem because the earlier you intervene with autism, the better the outcomes are. So if we have children getting diagnosed a year, a year and a half later than their, counter, their white counterparts, then they're losing a lot of that growth that they could potentially have. And so in terms of what I'm looking at is sort of when they actually are diagnosed and they're already in the service system, do we see disparities in the services that they're receiving? And that's some data that I'm actually currently analyzing right now. So we do have Medicaid billing data that I have received. And so what I'm doing is sort of looking to see, you know, are these children getting less services once they are already diagnosed? Specifically, I'm interested in parent training because that's sort of what our lab looks into. But I also have billing data for sort of all of the different services a child with autism might receive. So also those direct hours they may be getting with a therapist. Are there any preliminary results that you'd be willing to share with us at the moment? Sure. So I have looked into, for my thesis, the number of parent training sort of hours or encounters, as we call them. So how often were children getting parent training billed through Medicaid? And what we found is that in general, parent training is not happening a lot out in the community mental health system across all kids. So the frequency is very low for all children. And what I'm trying to do right now is using multi-level modeling to be able to see sort of does that differ based on race, gender, ethnicity, and rurality of the agency. So it's kind of a more advanced statistical procedure that I'm learning. Um, I actually just learned this summer and I'm hoping to run those analyses before the end of the summer and start looking at that more closely. Well, good luck with that. I was curious, how can a parent actually start detecting these signs so early on? Because the baby probably can't even speak by then. How can they actually start to pick up on those signs so early? So if they have any concerns about the child's development, they should be, you know, going into regular pediatrician doctor's offices. And they should, usually when you go to the pediatrician and you have a young child, they're going to sort of ask you about these milestones, these developmental milestones. For example, does your baby turn when you say their name at a certain age? Are they making eye contact? How long has it been since they first said their first word, those sorts of things. So if they're going into the pediatrician's office and they start noticing that their child is a bit below or delayed from these milestones, then that's sort of a bit of a red flag where you'd want to go for some additional testing. Obviously, you would talk to your medical professionals about that. You know, if it's a slight delay, they may not refer you for testing, but it's those kinds of red flags about the developmental milestones that we're really looking for. Couldn't just a family perform a genetic test on their child instead of having to rely on these physical milestones that a pediatrician would be able to use? So right now, we don't actually know what causes autism for sure. Um, there's a lot of research going on in terms of the genetics. We do know there there is seems to be a genetic component to autism, although we're still really figuring that out. Right now, the field is kind of in agreement that there must be a genetic component to autism, but also there is an environmental component as well. So there may be, for example, different toxins in the air that the mother may be, you know, exposed to when she's pregnant, and those may also be at play. So really right now, it's still very early on in the field in terms of figuring out what is causing this. A lot of people in the field also believe that autism may actually not be one disorder, but sort of a cluster of things um, that kind of all hang together, and we call it autism with a label, but they may actually be different types of conditions. 
so there to answer your question there is no genetic test that you can go and get what we're doing right now is we're looking behaviorally so you would have an evaluation through a psychologist or a psychiatrist or something of that nature to sort of see behaviorally are you having the behavioral symptoms of autism i've been in social scenarios where i feel like my peers are not very aware of their surroundings that they don't actually realize like who's around them how can we get people to actually be more aware and recognize these signs like what are some signs that you recommend that people keep an eye out to be more considerate to the people around them so as i said before autism is and um, we call it a spectrum so there are people who have a range of skills a range of different impairment levels and things like that. So when you're out in the community, you might meet someone and not know that they have autism because they may be on one end of the spectrum where they're not as impaired. Or you might meet someone and it may be pretty obvious to you that there um, are some challenges with social communication, for example. So what I just tell people is that whether or not that person has a label of autism, just being mindful that people in the general population have differences in terms of how much eye contact they make, how much social time they enjoy, how they interact with people can vary in the general population as well as within the autism spectrum. So just being mindful of sort of how people seem to respond, how they like to be interacted with, it really just varies person to person, even within the autism spectrum. Thanks for that insight into your research. But what motivated you to get into this research in the first place? Well, I originally knew in undergrad that I was interested in psychology courses, but I was also interested in education. So I double majored in both. When I got out of undergrad, I was looking into teaching jobs, but also working in a research lab in a psychology sort of setting. So I did get a, a position where I was working in a research lab, and it just so happened that it seemed like a very good fit because it combined my interest in psychology, but also my interest in education because the work they were doing at that lab was looking at how to improve access to care for underserved families of children with autism, specifically within the public school system in Philadelphia and also in the early intervention system in Philadelphia. So that would be sort of if your child is between the ages of three and five they're not quite in school yet, but they need some additional special education, they would be getting services through what we call an early intervention system. So it's also kind of part of, you can think of it as part of the public school system. So it seemed to combine my interests because I was interested in psychology as well as education. And we were doing a lot of work directly with schools and with those early intervention agencies. So I just kind of got into it like that and I kind of fell in love with it. I did when I pursued my teaching degree, I did student teach in a kindergarten classroom in Philadelphia. Um, and I did have some children in my class who were probably on the spectrum, although I didn't have a formal diagnosis from anyone. And I just really enjoyed working with those kids. And so when the opportunity came up to kind of work in a research lab that was looking into these things, it seemed like a good fit to start. And then I've kind of stayed ever since. I'm assuming you're from Philadelphia or did you go to undergrad there? I went to undergrad right outside of Philadelphia. So I went to Swarthmore College, which is in a suburb about 25 minutes from Philadelphia. Cool. So did you apply to MSU particularly because of the laboratory that you were interested in or like did you just find it afterwards? Yeah. So I applied to work specifically with um, my advisor, Brooke Ingersoll, because I really admired the work that she was doing. I was really interested in supporting parents of children with autism. And when I say parents, I also mean, you know, guardians, primary caregivers who may not be biological parents, but 
so yeah, I, I applied to work with her directly because I really admired the research she was doing here. What has been your favorite aspect about working in this particular lab and performing these case studies? I've really enjoyed working with real families. I, I really like the research because we can look at it kind of big picture, looking at the statistics and grouping all these people, you know, into groups of maybe 100 people or something. And you can kind of see the trends in the big data. But I also really like working one on one with families and seeing, you know, this family and this child and sort of feeling like I'm making a difference for those those kids directly. So I just find it very rewarding. And the lab is a really friendly atmosphere and everyone is very supportive of each other. So it's been a really nice experience. It's really cool that you get to interact with people as well as being in the laboratory. Like, do the people go to your laboratory or do you go to a specific place to interact with them? So for my for that RCT I was talking to you about, so for that experiment where we're looking at the effectiveness of that parent training intervention, they do come, it is a telehealth intervention, so it's all being delivered over Skype or on the computer, but the families do come in for assessments so that we can sort of track their progress. So we have them come in before they start the program, and then we have them come in right after they finish the program, and then we also have them come in three months after they've finished the program for a follow-up. So what we're doing there is having some assessments to see sort of, does your growth, is it getting better due to the study, due to the intervention, sorry. Well, this changes how I understood this experiment actually ran. You're saying that these parents actually interact with you via Skype and phone interview. So then how far are these families away from these community mental health centers? Just out of curiosity, are they within the state or are they across state lines? It's sort of, I think I've been talking about two different studies. So for the one um, with the parent training intervention that my advisor is running, that one, they're coming from all across Michigan. And so they come into the lab for the assessments and we're kind of communicating with them via kind of a Skype type situation. For my master's thesis, we were looking at community mental health clinics across Michigan as well. And so what we were doing is looking at how are providers perceiving using this service. And for that one, we were not interacting directly with the children. So I was looking at billing data that the children had, anonymous billing data. I had a survey with providers who filled that out. And then I did some follow-up interviews with some of those providers, just getting their sense of sort of, we know this isn't happening a lot, so how come you guys aren't doing it? Thanks for clarifying that. That actually makes it a lot clearer for me personally. You mentioned billing, and I'm curious, is it really expensive to train these parents, or is it cheaper to train the parents versus taking the child to a trained professional? So when you're billing, you're actually still billing for the provider's time because the provider is there training the parent. But we do have in Michigan a higher reimbursement rate for parent training which just means that the provider's agency is getting more money from Medicaid if they do parent training. It's sort of a way to incentivize them because the idea is if we increase the amount of hours that the child is receiving services, so if we can train the parents and they're receiving these services, you know, they're receiving strategies during bedtime and bath time, we may see more progress and then we can kind of not need as much intensive services later on. So the billing rate is actually pretty high for parent training in Michigan, in the Michigan Medicaid Autism Benefit. But we're still paying for the provider's time training the parent. Well, it sounds like you're really involved with these incredible community programs. And it's great that we have people like you to actually head the charge 
to look at these different studies. But what else are you involved in? I know that you're not just sitting in the lab just doing research. What else do you like to do? Well, I, for fun, I like to kind of hang out with friends, spend some time with my cat, <laughs> listen to live music, things like that. Besides sort of my lab work and things like that, we do see clients in our clinic for the clinical psychology program. And so I am a child therapist for four clients a week. And then I also volunteer in the Mid-Michigan Autism Association. So that's a nonprofit where we provide community events for families of children with autism. And then I also am involved in academic governance. So I work at the Council of Graduate Students here at Michigan State as the Vice President of Internal Affairs. And then I'm also involved in the Black Graduate Student Association. So um, kind of a mix of different things. It's really cool that you're involved in so many things. So you are a child psychologist or therapist for four children, right? Yeah, so I'm training to be a psychologist, and so I'm not one just yet, but I am a therapist, so I'm kind of working towards my PhD. After you get the PhD in clinical psychology, you would have done an internship, so you would have been working kind of full-time as a therapist, kind of like med school does a residency, something like that. You have to do that before you get your PhD in this field. And then after you have the PhD, you still have to do many more hours of clinical work before you sit for the licensure exam. So right now I see children in therapy, but I'm supervised by a licensed psychologist who sort of oversees all of my work. That's interesting. So you have to do uh, clinical hours as well. I know every PhD program is different. How many hours do you have to do? So right now I'm seeing four clients a week, which is kind of our goal. So that would be roughly 45 minutes in session. So, But then you have like notes that you have to do and prepping for the session. So it can get maybe around like eight hours or so a week for your regular therapy appointments. Then then we also do assessments. So people coming in sort of with a question, sort of why am I having these symptoms They may come in and we would do a thorough assessment of sort of what the symptoms are and where they may be coming from and then sort of give them a diagnosis and some recommendations. And so you may have an assessment going on as well, and then those hours may increase as well. What have been the differences in your experience between your clinical psychology PhD program and the Mid-Michigan Autism Association? So the Mid-Michigan Autism Association is a nonprofit that we have here in the mid-Michigan region. And for that, it's really just helping um, build community for families of children with autism. Um, A lot of times we see those families are kind of feeling very isolated because they may have, there may be stigma in the community or they may have difficulty feeling comfortable taking their children to different events. For example, if the child may have sensory sensitivities and they might want to take them to the baseball game, but It's very loud and there's flashing lights and things like that. And so they may choose to stay home. So what we do for the nonprofit is we put on events that are specifically for these families. For example, we recently had an event at the Lansing Lug Nuts game, the baseball game, where we had a sensory friendly night. And we worked with that organization to kind of make the sound a little bit softer, have a sensory room where if you were having a a need for a quiet space, you could go to that space at the baseball stadium, things like that, where we can kind of reduce the sensory input, which can be overwhelming for some children with autism. So for the nonprofit, we're really trying to build community and have different events and resources for families to kind of access that and get together with other families as well. 
which is really nice. And then in my clinical work, you know, that's really kind of a more formal therapy setting where a family's coming in to see me in a therapy room and we're working on whatever that child's goals are. And then in the research, that's, you know, kind of a separate thing where we're kind of looking at the effectiveness of interventions or I, for my own work, maybe looking at sort of how do we help these providers do this service, which we already know is pretty effective. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, DeAndra. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.